This is Teresa Clark with Africa.com, and on today's episode of this podcast series, we have the privilege of speaking with Simon Fremantle and Penny Byrne of Standard Bank. And the topic that we have today is COP26 and why it matters for Africa. Before we get started, let's talk a little bit about what COP26 is. And in November, um, the United Nations will be bringing together all of the nations of the world to talk about climate change. For nearly three decades, the UN has been bringing together almost every country on earth for global climate summits. These are called COPs, which stands for Conference of the Parties. In that time, the climate change has gone from being a fringe issue to a global priority. This will be the 26th annual summit, which gives it the name COP26. The UK is president of this meeting and it will take place in Glasgow. Now, we're here with experts from Standard Bank who have a deep level of expertise on this topic and the environment in Africa. And let's just do a little bit of, of an introduction of both Simon and Penny. And um, I think in addition to understanding who they are as individuals, I'll ask them to also share a little bit about why um, an institution like Standard Bank has expertise and knowledge around something um, related to, to climate change. So Simon, we'll start with you. Will you tell us a little bit, we, we know you, we've interviewed you before, but for those who might be meeting you for the first time, um, tell us a little bit about what you do at Standard Bank and also um, in answer to my question around why Standard Bank cares about this topic and why this topic cares about Standard Bank. Yeah, sure. Well, thanks very much for the invitation. It's great to be on, uh, on the, in this discussion. So I've been at the bank for just over 12 years now, and my role has shifted over that time. I started out as a, an economist based in Nairobi, covering East Africa, uh, and then also looking at some sort of big pitch, picture macro themes for the continent, largely around uh, non-traditional partners, investment and trade, China, Brazil, India, Russia, the so-called BRIC economies. And back in the early 2010s, there was obviously a great deal of focus on, on how they were reshaping trade and commercial relationships in Africa. Then when I moved back to South Africa, I continued the, the macro research, but started to also focus on South African political economy issues, which have become a big part of, of my input within the research team, but have constantly looked at these bigger picture macro trends in, across the continent. I mean, Standard Bank, as many of the listeners may know, uh, is one of the largest banks on the continent, has a, has a in presence in around 20 markets on the continent. So, you know, Africa matters a huge amount to the bank. Um, and some of these large trends really uh, play a big role in shaping economic, political, institutional outcomes uh, on the continent. So it was a natural process, really, to start looking more at, at climate change, given how uh, global leaders, both economic and political, are, are paying much more attention to, to its effects and consequences and, and having to adapt systems quite aggressively to mitigate for these same uh, implications. So earlier this year, I wrote a, an initial report on a sort of a scene setting report on how climate change affects Africa, how Africa is particularly vulnerable. Um, and the most recent output is together with Penny, uh, who focuses more on the climate science. And we thought to produce something specifically on COP, which obviously uh, in this time round, African negotiators are, are placing a, a lot of emphasis on. Thank you for, for that introduction. And, and Penny, let's go to you now and tell us a little bit about your background and, um, and your views as to why Standard Bank is in this conversation. Yeah, great. Thank you. 
So I've been at Standard Bank a little over six years now. Uh, when I first started, I was part of the FX and fixed income research team, but I have a PhD in climate science. As uh, the droughts in South Africa, in particular in the Western Cape, became more and more topical, and I was writing uh, on those uh, issues, we started to, um, to investigate those and got a lot of good feedback. And so my role has shifted, and now my focus is solely on water, weather, and climate change, um, which has been uh, great. The, the clients definitely uh, get a lot out of it, I think, in terms of you know, uh, why does Standard Bank care about this? Um, climate change is an issue that affects everyone. Um, and as Simon mentioned, Africa in particular, uh, as the climate continues to change, there are more risks. And the more we know about what to expect going forward, the better prepared we can be. And so I think that Standard Bank's been quite proactive, um, you know, on this on this topic in terms of uh, really trying to understand what the impacts are um, and and what's what's coming. Well, let's let's move on to talking about why COP twenty six matters for Africa in particular. Why? I mean, we've got you know hundred you know almost two hundred countries involved in the UN. Why does it matter for the African countries um, in ways different from from maybe some of the more developed Western countries? I think that there's a couple of aspects to to that question the, the one is is cop generally and why it matters for africa and the other is why does cop 26 matter uh, perhaps more than some of the previous cop gatherings have have mattered or at least why is there greater focus on cop 26 and there's a few reasons for that one of them is that um cop 26 which should have been held last year but it was postponed because of the covid 19 pandemic uh, and it was COP26 is really the opportunity to review the five-year targets that were set in Paris in 2015. Uh, and some of them was, as many of your listeners will know, are very ambitious around uh, mitigating uh, the effects of climate change, committed, developed economies committed to funding, uh, developing economies, mitigation and adaptation activities to the tune of $100 billion a year, which the aim, of course, was that in the intervening five-year period, it would provide quite substantial support to, to less developed economies in their ability and, and, and their intent to, to try and control emissions and adapt economic and institutional systems to support um, growth that isn't as reliant on these carbon intensive electricity systems. Uh, so it's a review, it's a five-yearly review that, that has generated a great deal of attention um, for that reason. But the other reason is that in the last two years, global alarm over the effects and consequences of changing climatic patterns across the world has increased dramatically. I mean, I recall in at the beginning of last year when the World Economic Forum Summit was held, it was in the context of those raging Australian wildfires. And it was just before the COVID pandemic really hit us all, which came within, within weeks after the WEF Summit. But the WEF Summit was taking place at a time of, of really heightened uh, global uh, awareness around how global warming is no longer a, a disputed topic. Um, it is inevitable, its consequences are growing, um, and the denialists uh, had, had increasingly, have increasingly less space in which to ventilate their views given the, the compounding and compelling scientific and, and, and real-time evidence of the effects of climate change. So COP26 takes place in that context. Um, now why it's particularly important for Africa is is not only as, as Penny can take you through why 
Africa is particularly prone to the effects of global warming. Uh, but also the COVID-19 pandemic has shown us just how inequitous uh, the distribution of vaccines has been, how uh, unequal and skewed the global response to a shared pandemic really is. And it's shown us that in order to tackle another shared crisis, which is climate change more comprehensively, we have to change the way that we approach these kinds of challenges. It cannot be the same system as we've seen in the last 18 months of COVID-19 where the vast majority of technical expertise and vaccine supply has been hoarded in developed economies, and Africa in particular, as well as other developing markets, are left uh, well behind in terms of their capacity to, to catch up and recover as quickly as, as advanced markets. So we go into this COP26 uh, being bruised to an extent from the experience of COVID-19, and, and, and African negotiators need to be clear on the agenda that managing climate change has to be different. And, and this is why we think Africa should be at the center of the discussions, because it's a continent that is likely to be particularly severely affected by climate change, despite the fact that it's contributed almost, almost negligible amounts to, towards global warming, about 4% of total emissions. So there's a political context that I think is very compelling uh, around COP26 in particular, uh, which, is, which lets it stand out to some extent from, from previous COP gatherings. Yes, well, very, very comprehensive response to that. And, and Penny, do you want to add anything about why Africa is so important in this conversation? Yeah, I'll just add that the state of the African climate is, uh, is clearly being affected by climate change. When I was studying, when I was uh, busy doing my PhD, a lot of people would say to me, oh, but how do we know for sure that the models are right? And, you know, global warming, is it really happening? And, you know, there was... A lot of a lot of denialist uh, action, and and I often said to them, "Call me back in ten years." Oh, I actually used to say twenty years. It turns out I could have said ten years. The evidence in the past two years of how climate change has affected the world is absolutely undeniable. You cannot turn on the news on any given day without some kind of climate catastrophe somewhere in the world, be it flooding or wildfires or drought. Um, and and it's, these extreme events um, have, I think, contributed to the general uh, belief of, of the layman that this is really something that's happening and that we need to start worrying about more. And we've also had a huge uptake in, uh, in climate activism, particularly from uh, the youth. And I think that's also put a real spotlight uh, on this upcoming, uh, this up upcoming COP, uh, which is great. Well, that's a very interesting point, Penny. Can you talk a little bit more about how African youth are focusing on this issue? Well, I think that the youth in general um, across the world, and in particular in Africa, are starting to realize the world that they're being handed. And that, unfortunately, a lot of the people currently in power, 2050 is far enough away that it's not necessarily within their, uh, their life, lifespan, um, or if it is, it's, it's kind of closer to the edge of it. So I think that there's a lot of activism around the fact that, that the youth feels like they're being uh, handed a raw deal. Um, and I think they're quite frustrated that there, there seems to not be enough action. There's more talk than action uh, around a lot, of, um, a lot of these topics and these issues. Uh, and the, I, I suppose one thing the pandemic's been quite uh, positive um, 
before is this kind of virtual communication. Um, and I think that, that there's a lot more um, collaboration um, across the world and also uh, within the African continent of, of more people trying to get together and uh, be represented and feel represented. Yeah, and let's let's just stay there because I think that that's such an important point that you raise. I mean, we we can talk about this, and I think that for many people, um, especially some people in Africa, there is a sense that we have a lot of very urgent priorities. Um, you know, making sure that people eat today is a priority. Making sure that people get access to healthcare today is a priority. Africa's most, one of, one of the lowest vaccination rates, you were referencing this, Simon, um, you know, and the COVID challenge that Africa is still facing while many parts of the world have really advanced on vaccinations. I think, you know, trying to make the climate um, you know, a big issue in Africa for many, you know, they say, well, you know, this is something that's not gonna happen for decades to come. And I've got issues that matter here and now. You know, can, can you talk a little bit about that and sort of, you know, how does that translate into, into real human dynamics and, um, and, you know, is there potential for human conflict? I mean, how does this translate into here today issues? Yeah, so, I mean, it's an argument that, um, that a, a professor at, the, um, at UCT made, and he was saying essentially what you're saying, that there are these more pressing daily life or death uh, type of issues that, that so many people in Africa, and I mean, you can kind of just, you can say Africa, or you can say in the developing world in general, um, have, and what do they care about the climate in, in 5, 10, 15, 20 years time when they're more worried about their more immediate uh, needs? And that's absolutely, absolutely understandable and definitely true. But that's why the leadership needs to take a bigger picture view and understand that uh, you know, food insecurity is only going to get worse in a climate, in a changing climate. Um, so this is really something that, that needs to be addressed uh, sooner rather than later. Uh, but I'll also let uh, Simon comment on that. Yeah, it's, I, I mean, I, I was going to say a similar thing around leadership. I mean, that's that's these are moments where leaders need to take the initiative. Uh, and, and you're absolutely right, Teresa, that, you know, on the list of priorities for many low income African markets in particular, COVID-19 and climate change rank relatively low because they have far more pressing existential crises to deal with on a daily basis. And we've seen that also in South Africa during the COVID pandemic, um, when surveys have been done in informal settlements around what are the primary concerns that they face. COVID battles to make it into the top five, sometimes not even into the top 10, whereas in middle class and, and upper middle class households, COVID-19 is, is an apex risk. You know, it's people, things that have affected their lives in in much more, or not in more material ways, but it's a, it's relative to their well-being. COVID imposes constraints that they're unfamiliar with. So, so these are real concerns in, in markets that are deeply affected by these longer-term existential challenges, but uh, maybe don't square with the lived daily realities that they face. So, so yes, as Penny says, leadership is, is hugely important. But there have been surveys done, particularly uh, amongst farmers in Africa, and of course, agriculture is still the mainstay um, of employment and economic activity, not to mention the provision of basic sustenance across, across Africa. 
And so farming is, is, a, is a huge uh, provider of, of, as I said, employment and income and, and sustenance across these markets. And if, if it's seen by farmers, by communities, that climate change is affecting their ability to farm, then I think sentiment will change quite dramatically around how this is a risk that political leaders uh, have been emphasizing and that it, it sort of takes on a, a greater sense of awareness across these markets. So Afrobarometer, which is a, a very well-established socioeconomic uh, survey uh, tool across, I think they survey typically over 30 African markets on a variety of variables. But they did some research not long ago where they asked uh, farmers uh, across various African economies if they felt that the conditions in which they're operating have become worse, better, the same, or if they didn't know as a result of climate conditions changing. And 49% said worse or much worse. 17% uh, said conditions are the same, and 20% said things seem to have gotten better. So that's a pretty compelling indication that farmers are already feeling the effects of climate change. And I think that that's going to be one of the more compelling angles through which leaders, be they commercial or political, can approach communities across Africa to emphasize the importance of taking action. Some of the action that they need to take will be painful um, in terms of the change in lifestyle, as well as potentially the economic impacts. You're gonna to have to reroute fiscal resources towards combating climate change away from the provision of, of basic services. You may have to take away from infrastructure budgets, from social welfare budgets, from education budgets, in order uh, to, to spend on the adaptation uh, of, of you know, the adaptation costs that come with trying to re-gear your economies and, and socioeconomic systems to reduce the impact of climate change. And those are very difficult decisions to make. And, and I think that awareness amongst the farming community of, of the growing present risks of climate change will help in selling those difficult decisions across the continent. Yeah, that's a very, very good response. And I think you know, the, the research that you mentioned from Afrobarometer, I think is really very relevant to this conversation. Um, you know, there's some similar research that I've seen from Pew Research that talks about that perhaps it's not just framing, it's about how we frame the question and that we frame the issue, that um, people are very concerned about the consequences of climate change. They may not sit around thinking, oh, I'm th worried about climate change, but the consequences they are worried about, whether it's drought, water shortage, severe weather, floods, intense storms, you know, periods of long hot weather, all of that, rising sea levels. When you put it in those terms, you know, there's a huge um, risk, it's a huge set of risks for Africa. And so I, I think that the, the point that you make about that Afrobarometer research is really, really spot on and bringing it home to the agricultural sector. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about agriculture. Um, what, what can be done to limit the impact of climate change on the agricultural sector? So agriculture, uh, it's a really interesting sector from the point of view of we tend to classify climate risk in uh, two streams. We talk about physical risk and we talk about transition risk. So physical risk are uh, droughts and storms and floods and, and all the physical um, uh, uh, side effects that come with a, a warming climate. Um, and transition risk is the risk associated from uh, with moving from uh, the current economy into a low carbon economy. 
And agriculture is fairly unique in that it has high physical and transition risk. Agriculture is one of the uh, largest um, emitters of uh, greenhouse gases. So um, largely due to methane as well. Um, and so as a result, you, for a, from a global point of view, mitigation and reducing emissions in the agriculture sector uh, is, is absolutely a big part of, of uh, the climate discussion. Um, but thankfully, there are a lot of really great uh, new technologies that we're discovering no-till farming and uh, drip irrigation as opposed to spray irrigation. And there really are a lot of um, practices that farmers can implement. Uh, and fortunately, of course, you know, in Africa, you're talking about mostly smallholder farmers or subsistence farmers who don't necessarily have um, huge cash flow to do any kind of spend on, on any of the, the new technologies. So I think that uh, funding, uh, climate funding is, is a huge part of this uh, equation. And from a mitigation point of view in Africa, as Simon did mention earlier, that Africa has contributed in 2019, it was just under 4% of global emissions. And if you look through uh, the cumulative total from uh, 1751 to 2019, it's um, just under 3%. So in terms of reducing emissions, it's really, the focus should be more on uh, the developed market rather than developing nations. However, for adaptation, then you need to start looking at where are your floodplains, what are the likelihoods of floods in these regions and trying to uh, relocate out of those types of regions um, and infrastructure build has to be done in such a way that we can withstand really big storms or storm surges and it starts to get quite difficult, uh, but adaptation is almost certainly more important than mitigation on the African continent in particular. I would just add to, to what Penny said uh, in saying that there's a couple of other tools that or, or approaches towards reducing Africa's vulnerability uh, in terms of its, its heavy reliance on agriculture. The one is that, you know, some previous research I did many years ago into Africa's agricultural sector, you know, which a lot of analysis has been done on this by uh, global, global multilateral bodies, by the World Food Programme, by AGRO, which is an organization looking at a uh, green revolution across Africa, is that, you know, as Penny has pointed to, the vast majority of farming in Africa is small-scale subsistence, uh, which is, you know, not necessarily negative, but we need in Africa to shift as a balance, as they have in China, between uh, more resilient large-scale commercial farming as well as uh, small-scale subsistence. And many markets are almost entirely dependent on, on subsistence farming to, to improve livelihoods. And so the commerciality and the larger scale of things can also improve resilience because larger scale farming can adopt better technologies, can produce food at, at a greater scale. Um, and there's a degree of resilience there to the effects of climate change that I think would, would certainly help in, in buffering the agricultural sector and, and, and at least its output um, in the context of, of shifting global path, uh, climate patterns. The second is that there's been very elaborate research done on the socioeconomic importance of insurance. So climate events, as we know, whether it's a typhoon in yeah. the Mozambican coast, whether it's a drought throughout or a locust invasion in East Africa or a drought throughout Southern Africa, one of the biggest consequences is that for small businesses or small farmers, their entire crop might be wiped out or for small businesses, they might see their entire 
uh, cash-based income obliterated. So it's, it's increasingly important to see um, Africans connect to financial services through accessing bank accounts and then through that as well, also accessing the ability to save and the ability to access insurance products. Um, and this is happening at quite a rapid scale. So mobile banking in Africa is, is, is surging. We know that. That's a fairly well-covered story. And there's, there's research to show just how effective mobile money services are in increasing economic resilience and reducing the effects of these exogenous shocks, many of which are climate-related. So for instance, uh, one study on, on mobile, on women-headed households in Kenya, for instance, showed that mobile money services increased their savings by more than a fifth, allowed 185,000 women to leave farming and develop business or retail activities, and help to reduce extreme poverty amongst women-headed households by 22%. Now, these are enormous numbers. So given the base effect where still the majority of African households lack access to financial services, if you can improve that, I know it's not a direct angle towards re reducing the effect of climate change and agriculture, but you are improving the economic and social resilience of small-scale farmers and allowing them to, be slight, to, to provide them with a buffer in times of, of climate-related uh, shock to their crops or, or, or output and, of course, their livelihoods. Well, you raised some very important points there. Um, you know, one of the things I'd like to follow up with you on with that question is, you know, how does global warming impact the coastal zones? Um, we know that about 30 million Africans live in flood hazard zones. And so what does this mean for them? In terms of uh, the oceans and climate change, so from a climate science point of view, um, we know that global sea, uh, global mean sea levels have been increasing. They've actually increased to, uh, around 20 centimeters since uh, 1901. And this is largely due to ice sheet melts um, on land and thermal expansion from the ocean warming. Unfortunately, this rate of sea level rise is not uniform across the world. And in fact, the Indian Ocean coast uh, of Africa has seen sea level rise um, at a faster rate than uh, the global average. So as you mentioned, there are a huge number of African uh, coastal communities um, who are particularly vulnerable to uh, sea level rise. And uh, besides just the, the population uh, density around the coast and the livelihoods, mangroves. Um, so a mangroves is the, the place where ocean, freshwater and land meet and you get these mangrove forests. And they are absolutely essential to livelihoods um, across the world, but in particular, a huge amount of the African coast um, is covered in, in mangroves. An estimated 80% of the global fish catch relies on mangroves, either directly or indirectly. It's a spawning ground. Uh, they're also important for wood and um, medicine. Uh, water quality is maintained by mangrove forests as well further downstream. They stabilize shorelines, they help to prevent erosion, um, and they provide a natural barrier to storm surges and uh, flooding and tropical cyclones. They also can um, play an important role in tourism for many countries, so they're quite important for the economic growth as well. And they sequester carbon at a greater rate than tropical forests, so they even help with mitigation. And I, 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 I've told you quite a few of the kind of positive um, parts of mangroves. And unfortunately, as the sea levels continue to rise, 
these forests are going to be at um, at greater danger, uh, as well as from increased storm surges and uh, tropical cyclones, um, wildfires, ocean acidification. So unfortunately, there are a number of climate climate change induced um, uh, impacts that that might very negatively affect mangroves. Um, around the world and particularly around uh, great parts of Africa. Well, that's quite quite important as you describe it. Thank you for that education. It's a really important issue. And I think that you know, just the general notion of living in a flood hazard zone for vulnerable communities, people who may not have, you know, tying this back to what Simon was saying, um, you know, people who don't have financial resources to weather no pun intended using that word, but to weather storms and to weather um, you know, disasters, you know, it, it makes people very financially vulnerable. Is, is that also what you're saying, Penny? Absolutely, definitely without, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so much of the economic activity is also along the coast. Um, and you just get this, this kind of a number of different factors that all come together and um, can spell disaster and just make things that much more difficult uh, for those communities. Unfortunately, also sea level rise is, so in terms of um, climate change and global warming, there are a number of, of different factors that, that we expect would stabilize if we cut all emissions today. So uh, the science on this has, has varied over time, but the consensus now is that if we manage to stop all emissions today, the uh, temperatures would stabilize. So global average temperatures would remain around where they are now. Um, however, there are some, some uh, consequences of climate change that have gathered enough momentum that we would still continue to see some impact going forward. And unfortunately, sea level rise is, uh, is one of those. Even if we manage to stop emissions today, it would slow the rate of sea level rise, but unfortunately it wouldn't stop uh, sea levels from uh, continuing to uh, increase. So let's bring this back to, we're talking to Standard Bank on this topic, and let's bring it back to finance. Um, a lot of African countries you know, need funds for all the things we've talked about earlier, for healthcare, for education, for a lot of immediate needs, but and in order to be able to address climate change, this, this, you know, the, the remediation that you're talking about costs money, big money. Um, and the countries don't have, um, at a governmental level, um, extra money to address these issues. So what needs to be done in terms of funding from developed nations so that Africa can address these issues? Yeah, I think, you know, you've, you've put your finger on it, on, on the dilemma there and, and COVID-19 has made things a whole lot worse. I mean, Sub-Saharan Africa had been on a fairly strong growth trajectory uh, at an aggregate level pre-COVID um, to the point where some markets were, were outperforming global average by some margin. And COVID-19 has really obliterated that momentum. I mean, last year, Sub-Saharan Africa had the lowest aggregate growth number on record. Um, we've never seen aggregate growth that low across the sub-region. Uh, South Africa's economy contracted, we saw uh, growth contracted by 7%. Again, unprecedented. We've never seen that kind of, uh, of economic decline. And the fiscal resource shock has been enormous. So 
even though African markets went into COVID with, with fairly limited fiscal reserves, we're now in a situation where debt rates have increased because it had to borrow more. Uh, and of course, uh, a lack of growth means that the fiscal con uh, you know, perspective looks a lot uh, more challenging as well. So we sit in an environment where there aren't going to be easy resources to, to spend on you know, adapting economic systems towards climate change. To give you a, just a practical example, ESCOM, which is for those who, who are not aware, South Africa's state-owned power utility, ESCOM currently has debt of around 400 billion rand, uh, but 85% of South Africa's electricity generation is via aging with the exception of two new coal plants, but most of them are 30, 40 year old coal fired power plants that are incredibly heavy in their greenhouse gas emissions. So there's an imperative on ESCOM to decarbonize, but that comes at an enormous cost because you're gonna have to repurpose these power stations, build new capacity, change transmission structures and so on. And so ESCOM's going to COP26 and saying, you know, we need support for that. Now, the support can come in two forms. It can come, either in the form of a concessional loan uh, from a developed world country or a group of countries or multilateral institutions to say, we will lend you a, a certain amount of money. And the uh, concessional rate is dependent on the country that receives the, the loan making or reaching certain targets in terms of their overall reduction in emissions. The second form of financial support is in the form of grants. Now, African negotiators are going to COP26 and saying, that we need more grants and less of these loans because grants, of course, are, are you know, in their essence, they don't have the same kind of repayment structures. They don't threaten to increase indebtedness. Some of the concessional loans that have been provided in the past for around the climate financing contingent have not been as concessional as they should have been. Um, so there's, there's quite a lot of pressure from African negotiators to make sure that there's an emphasis on grants rather than just on loans. But the problem with that is in order for, for countries to extend grants, there still needs to be a business case. There needs to be a commitment from the recipient country. Um, and in that sense, I think African economies are still gonna have to largely settle uh, for concessional loans, provided they can, they can uh, present a basic case to, to attract that investment. We need bankable projects. We need national long-term strategic plans. We need to know where those funds are gonna be allocated and, and what the returns on them could be because we are still operating, of course, in, in a global financial system that, uh, you know, in which African countries must, must navigate quite carefully. But behind the scenes, there needs to be a general increase in the allocation towards developing world mitigation and adaptation. Um, and many African heads of state, including uh, from South Africa, have made the point that the $100 billion commitment from developed economies, which was announced in Paris in 2015 and has not been fulfilled, so developed economies have, have not come close to distributing $100 billion a year since 2015. But even that is the flaw on what developing economies need. And, and we're gonna have to see, in order for us to have any chance of reaching the mitigation targets that have been set in the, in the nationally developed contributions by 2030, by 2040, we're gonna, see a, we're gonna have to see a dramatic ramp up in uh, developed world funding for climate change adaptation and mitigation services. Can they secure that at COP26? Uh, it'll, you know, to a great extent, the success of the summit will hinge on whether developed markets can come forward with more ambitious commitments on the one hand, and create a framework in which those commitments will be uh, enforceable. As in, in five years time when we gather, 
and survey the pre previous period. Uh, we're not again in a situation where the commitments that have been made ha have been unfulfilled. Very good point. Very good point. And, and to that one, um, let me ask you um, what is my final question or one of my final questions. Um, top 27 is going to be in Egypt. And so um, with it being in Egypt, um, that presents an opportunity for Africa to be front and center for all the conversations. What progress would you like to see Africa make by COP27? I think that if we can have uh, an agreement on uh, the possibility of advanced world climate finance contributions, so that would be a big uh, point of progress. And if it's not struck in Glasgow in a couple of weeks time, uh, then, then there's going to have to be an ongoing focus on it, and perhaps that can be a more central theme in Egypt next year. I think the second theme has to be, uh, as I said, around a balance between adaptation and mitigation, as Penny spoke about earlier. African countries generally don't need funding for mitigation because there's not all that much to mitigate. They need funding for adaptation, and the vast majority of climate financing over the last five, ten years has gone into mitigation activities, which basically eliminates the vast majority of low-income African markets. So greater focus on adaptation, bigger general commitments towards the developing world. And a third component will be that African negotiators are saying that the continent should be guaranteed, uh, you know, 50% is the, is the claim, but if it's not that, it should be close to that, of total developing world climate spend, because Africa is more vulnerable and its general contribution towards this crisis has been so modest. So those are some of the apex priorities. There are others, such as ensuring that developed economies don't pass on their carbon emissions into developing economies. There are others around transparency on climate finance. What is climate finance? You know, how is it allocated? What decisions are made uh, in terms of the conditionalities that are struck and so on? So those are sort of technicalities. But I would say the three sort of flagship takeaways that African negotiators are looking for around those three key funding expectations. And if they're not reached in COP26, which I think it, it's ambitious to assume they will be, then they get pushed forward to Egypt next year, where hopefully being able to set the agenda for the summit as host, uh, Egypt and, and by extension, Africa can have a bigger say on, on the commitments that are made. As well as um, besides investment and, and finance, we, which we absolutely need and a lot more than we've seen, we also require more knowledge uh, and knowledgeable people who can come and, uh, and, and expertise who can uh, really try and help frame what kind of projects would work and uh, the research and funding into research uh, would also be a win in my book. Simon, you, you mentioned in your remarks just about the fact that Africa has played a very small role in creating the, the problems that we have globally today. And um, yet Africa is also paying a big price for that. And there's been a lot discussed around environmental injustice. Um, and I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that before we close, just about Africa's role in the world and, you know, and just how, how it relates to you know, general issues of, of, of equity. Um, that we often don't think about, but when it comes to this question of environmental sustainability, it seems as if there's a very clear understanding of what role Africa has played and what price she's paying for other sins. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that COVID-19, as I said earlier in this discussion, has really placed into very stark contrast how despite uh, progress towards global integration, uh, you know, scientific transfer, various other enormous moments that we've had in terms of a global sort of a solidarity or a greater solidarity around the response to shared crises. COVID-19 has shown that when when, uh, you know, when the crisis really bites, uh, domestic political fundamentals in advanced economies tr trump uh, any of these major sort of solidarity commitments that they may have made. And so we're going to have to fight against that tendency uh, when it comes to climate change. Um, because what is also clear is that the climate agenda has shifted um, in advanced markets largely on the basis of uh, climatic risks that they have experienced. You know, as I said earlier, the Australian wildfires were a wake-up call. The Californian wildfires typically draw attention towards the consequences of, of climate change. But these kinds of crises are playing out in Africa on a routine basis. And so there needs to be far greater uh, expression of and, and concern around how the climate, um, uh, you know, the risks and complications emerging from global warming are playing out in a much more aggressive way across the continent in markets that don't tend to have the same kind of global coverage that we see elsewhere. So this is an opportunity. And, and when I wrote a note earlier this year, I ended off by saying that Africa has this uh, dilemma where we're facing a deeply inequitous system where the African markets are now being told, you cannot grow in the same way that the developed economies have grown, right? Mm -hmm. This enormously productive industrial carbon intensive growth model that every advanced economy in the world has followed that many developing or developed Asian economies have followed is now African uh, leaders are now being told we as a, as, as a planet cannot afford you for, for you to do the same. thing, And yet you're at a developmental stage where the vast majority of your people need greater incomes, uh, improved livelihoods. So how do we square those two off against each other? And there's a tendency amongst uh, you know, many African policymakers to say it's not our fault and we need to grow in whichever way suits us. But of course, the consequences of those kinds of decisions will be primarily felt by those populations because the effects of climate change are most acute in Africa. So we don't have a choice. And within that, there's an opportunity to find different ways to grow, different ways to generate electricity. And fortunately, going back to Penny's point uh, around technology transfer, we have emerged into an environment in which there are alternatives. And if, if there can be pragmatism in that discussion, I think Africa can find ways to industrialize, to develop, to create job opportunities and so on, without following the same uh, destructive and carbon intensive path that has been um, followed throughout, you know, across the advanced and, and much of the developing world elsewhere. And that kind of pragmatism is tough uh, to, to strike when it comes to the, the consequences and the in inequities that you have suggested. But we don't really have a choice. And I think what COP26 has to realize is that in making that transition, African policymakers and populations require much more ambitious, targeted, and binding support. Um, and it can't be charity. It can't be aid. It's not that. And President Ramaphosa said recently in a letter to the, to the uh, public when he writes a weekly letter, he said, we need to agitate and argue for greater support. But this cannot be seen as Africa calling for aid and support for something that we're unable to deal with ourselves. It's a contribution. Uh, it's almost a reparation from advanced economies because Africa is being told that they need to redesign economic systems 
Uh, and in order to pay for that, the countries that have contributed the most towards global warming have to take a leading role. And, and hopefully there will be enough pragmatism to accept that reality, particularly in the context of COVID-19 inequalities uh, in a couple of weeks time. Well said, well said, Simon. Penny, do you wanna add anything there or shall we just end with that good uh, conclusion from yeah, Simon? Yeah, I don't know if it's possible to, <laughs> to put I it agree. so perfectly. Yeah. We let you have the last word, Simon. I think I'm really glad we asked that question and thank you for framing it so well. I think you really put that issue into perspective. Well, this is Teresa Clark at Africa.com. We've just had a fascinating conversation with Simon Fremantle and Penny Byrne of Standard Bank. And we thank you very much for helping us understand and unpack the issue of why Africa has to be at the center of COP26. Thank you so much for your time, both of you. <laughs>